Welcome to the Work in Progress podcast, brought to you by Work Nicer. Hosted by Gabe Kane and Alex Pudisi, this show is about amazing people telling even more amazing stories. This episode features guests Sean Parker and John Laboon. All right. Welcome to episode three of the Work in Progress podcast. This is a podcast that, as the name suggests, we're not exactly sure what's going on. It's still a bit of a work in progress, but we do know that it's full of very interesting people with very interesting conversation and a whole bunch of fun. And so without further ado, uh, let's get into it. My name is Alex. I am one of the hosts here. And to my left, for all of those listening, is Gabe. What's up? Gabe Kane, co-host. Been here since the beginning. It's been, yeah. A really short, long journey. Is that a good way to put it? Very, very great way of putting it. And to my right is Parker. Hi, this is the first one, but there's only been three, so I feel all right. Uh, 33% ain't bad. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and uh, let's get right into it. Our guest today, uh, his name is John. John, take it away. Hi. Uh, yes, thanks for having me, gents. And uh, my name is John Laboon. And... Um, in addition to being a member of a community we all are part of, um, in March of 2017, a moment came up where I felt I needed to really take responsibility for my life. And I called a friend of mine with the Calgary City Police and asked for a white collar referral. And I had turned myself in for a white collar crime. It was the beginning of a journey of a lot of change, recognition of a behavior or behaviors. The, the It's been a very interesting and really blessed journey since then. Yeah. I mean, so the name of the show, obviously work in progress. I mean, and, and to say like, you know, we brought John in here for a reason. You got a super interesting story, number one, but it's not over, right? Like your journey is really just beginning on, you know, this whole redemption story of this work in progress, you know, from a personal and professional life is super interesting, but yeah, let's, uh, let's catch the listeners up, John. I mean, so what, uh, you know, what lands you in the big house? Mm. <laughs> I love it when um, things like the big house or the clink or, <laughs> or as we refer to my institution as being D-Town, which is the Drumheller Institution, federal institution. We call it D-Town. By the way, mm -hmm. when I was about two years old, my dad was the warden of that prison. No way. Yep. No way. True story. Yeah, crazy. There might have been a time when I might have been a little more reluctant to have this conversation, but now I feel very free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I've uh, I had a very interesting childhood. Um, there was a there was quite a bit of abuse in the house, and uh, or as I like to say, boy, I'd take that physical abuse every day and twice on Sundays. The physical stuff was real easy to digest in comparison to the emotional and the verbal abuse, which was abundant. There wasn't a lot of tolerance in our household for children. And which is very interesting because one of my most favorite people over the years actually became my mother, who was an extremely intelligent woman. And we really were close and connected before she had passed, you know, well over 10 years now. But I carried a lot of that forward. So what became commonplace was a significant amount of uh, being deceitful, cheating, lying, everything more from a preservation standpoint. It was my way of surviving. And uh, it carried through in what I call good, bad, and indifferent times. And um, having felt like I needed to do that from preservation, it was very hard to create distinction between when it was necessary to do and when it wasn't necessary to do. It just happened. It just became an, a natural and normal habit. And it affected all my relationships, whether professionally, personally, 
romantically, elements of that affected all of those relationships. In spite of me, or as I used to say, in spite of me, but I say it now just more for context, I was quite successful in anything I sort of touched. Not anything, but I mean, I had my failures too. Um, and including business opportunities and things of that nature. Um, having carried a chip on my shoulder for such a, for such a long time of thinking that people thought I was stupid or incapable, lazy and those things, I worked extra hard to prove otherwise. I learned through hard knocks and, and especially when it came down to work and not being honest about my abilities at the beginning and saying, let's be dishonest about it now. And over time, I'll be able to prove to them that I'm capable, but I might have to take a few punches along the way. There was not that look at that at that time in that manner, but that's what it really became. If you asked me, so John, are you capable of taking apart this engine and putting it back together? I would tell you yes. And I'd stay awake for 24 hours a day for six weeks trying to figure out how it's done. Lying to you about, oh, it'll be done next week, which means I've got, a, you know, I've got four more days. And then asking for forgiveness of time and asking for an extension to actually show you what I was up to. And in my mind, anytime I presented something, I go, ta-da, look, it's pretty good. It was never vocalized that, no, you didn't get it right. Well, there were moments when maybe when I was younger. But I kind of figured stuff out through preservation and survival. And again, not to look stupid or that I, you know, I do know what I'm doing. And that went all the way through all levels of work. Um, I'd started um, amongst many things. Th this would be a six hour podcast of all the different things that I did over the years as an adult. Um, but um, in circa 2006, I started working for a firm. No, actually less than that, maybe 2004. I started working for a firm which was uh, owned by my then brother-in-law, who's still my brother-in-law, but we're estranged. And it was in the land banking firm. We bought and sold real estate for the purpose of development, or his company did. He had a partner in that, and I grew through there very quickly and was quite successful in raising capital for real estate development syndication. Through that whole process, I was starting to get itchy that this is something I want to do, but I want to be able to, you know, make decisions, <laughs> which means I had to start my own company. And to do so, I partnered up with then my, uh, my brother-in-law and two of our sales consultants from that company. And we started our own firm in 2008 called Latera Ventures. Lots of nifty little success stories considering all the fraud that was going on and which didn't happen at the beginning. It just kind of turned into that based on our, our inability to keep the doors open. I was part of a group of four that decided that we were going to do something where we had convinced ourselves and talked ourselves into, we weren't really doing anything wrong. We're trying to save a company and this is going to be a temporary measure and we'll deal and try and wipe away or manage the financial sin as time permitted. So what was it? You know, give us, give us layman's terms, you know, what was the sin? Yeah. So we'd go to investors investors that were very loyal to us because we had treated them well financially and telling them a story with a slightly different tweak, usually some withholding. So our investment would be, let's use as an example, we sold units of land for $10,000 each. And I went to Alex and I said, Alex, I've got some mortgages available in this land. Would you be interested? And because we had treated you so well financially in the past, you would be very quick. You didn't want all the details. You already knew the drill. You'd say, yeah, as a matter of fact, you have two or three of them. 
In other words, 20 or $30,000 worth of mortgage notes. What we weren't telling you is that it was just paper at that juncture. It wasn't actually a registered mortgage. So although we didn't directly say it was a, we're going to misuse your funds, we just were with the intention of buying some time so we could actually get our affairs in order in the company. And as the partners left, I continued that practice by myself in the company. It got really bumpy. And uh, every month, the 15th was a real big day for us because we had what was called an EFT or an electronic fund transmission. So individuals who were borrowing money in our program and individuals who are lending money, there was the exchange of cash simultaneously. And a lot of money was going in and out of accounts a lot of money to pay interest. And in our particular case, we got to a point just even before the partners had left where we had to make a difference between what a borrower was paying us. We were paying our lenders in the tune of twenty to $30,000 of interest payments a month. And that money had to come from somewhere. So after the partners left, in addition to selling these fictitious notes, let's say as an example of one thing that was fraudulent, I collapsed everything that I owned, like the physical stuff. The, the pressure would re- still coming around sort of the 10th, 11th, and 12th, because I had to prepare. These things just didn't happen in a minute. So for me to satisfy that transfer of cash for the 15th, I had to have my affairs in order. I was lying to our bank, which really trusted me. I was lying to um, my office manager, who was the last person standing outside of me. And there'd be the shuffle of cash from account to account just to make things work. And then after I double checked to make sure the math and we weren't going to have a bounce, I could breathe for another 20 to 25 days. So is this that same cycle you talked about? Like you, if someone told you, can you fix this car? And you would in a week, but when the week was up, you'd ask for more time. You basically were doing this every month. The 10th, 11th, 12th would come up and you'd be finding a way to get more time. You'd hit the 15th and then you'd have 30 more days. Correct. And every time on the 16th, I'm assuming you woke up and were like, I'm going to figure it out this 30 days. Correct. Correct. So with the exception of the last part, I would breathe because there's a funny relationship that I have with money that is whether it's mine or it's, I have just have access, whether it's credit. If I know that whatever bill is barking at the door, I can take care of it at that juncture. I can breathe for now. And as time goes on, then yeah, I'm looking at what's the strategy to avoid this in the next one. Well, the strategy is to continue working on bringing in some debt into the company, which I worked with a third party provider to try and get since day one without success. I question whether or not I would have been successful with that and glad actually, believe it or not, even though painfully for investors who are affected or directly or indirectly, that this actually happened because I couldn't imagine the amount of arrogance that would be carried if I actually took care of the financial sin because the damage had been done, even if they didn't know about it. I couldn't say for certain, but there is a high likelihood that I would think, oh my goodness, I'm impervious. I can keep this thing going. I've proven again. I can pull rabbits out of my hat and make things happen. And I can be the toast of the town for the moment. Sadly for the learnings, people got hurt you know, more specifically investors and their families, my people within my sphere, everyone gets affected. So in March of 2017, the day that I called my friend, we had a co-friend that I had lunch with. He's not well. He's, um, he's immobile. 
his biggest joy is to connect with people in his community. He was the general manager of the Calgary Colts since 1965, which is a junior men's football program here in Calgary. I'm an alum, and um, we had always been close over the years. I'd like to say that I had lunch with him because it was just time to have lunch with him, but I was about to ask him for money. And I was going to tell him a slightly different story, but in my head I couldn't even get that story straight about what, how was I going to deliver that. But I had enough confidence in me to know that if I actually asked him, he would have lent me the money. Company's in trouble. We could use a little bit of cash. I got, a, I got some financing coming in. I've heard this story with so many other individuals who are going down that path. And after dropping him off after lunch and we're sitting in the car and we're just finishing up our conversation as I see his wife walking over to help him up into his, uh, into his condo, I stopped myself. There was just enough gumption for me to stop. And as I see him walking over, I broke down. I, I cried for like a half hour, parked in that spot. And that's when I called my friend at the Calgary City Police. I had my interview with the city police uh, with a white collar referral, detective that is. The next day, which lasted about half a day, it was quick to realize it's a national case because we had investors throughout the entire country. And the, either the following day or the day after that, I met with who became the lead investigator in the entire case. Um, he works with a, um, a joint task force called JSOT, Joint Serious Offense Team. It's a combination of the RCMP and the Alberta Securities Commission because it was a securities violation. And had a couple of very lengthy interviews with him and uh, he was quick to say that they're going to pursue um, more well beyond uh, illegally trading a security, but in fact fraud over $5,000. It's funny how 5,000 is the threshold, eh? Yeah. Anything less than that has different treatment than $5,001, which is absurd. Schoolyard bully. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so for people, let's say, who were involved in fraud activity, and I can't speak for the United States, but within Canada, fraud over five can be, you know, $75 million. So what, what are we talking? As far as the damage? Yeah. It was $1.2 million over a period of three years. In case I forget to mention it, my restitution order from the court is to pay back 330000 of it. Okay. So the other three quarters, you know, the cash loss of those investors, that's just too bad, so sad for them. Is that the idea? And, and does the court divvy that three fifty up or, or have they decided who gets, you know, what portion of that? It's a really good question. It's the claimants. So with the Alberta Securities involved in the investigation, they had all the investors' contact information. And there were anywhere from 1,100 to 1,200 investors in that company, to which 30 and change were affected directly from the fraud. And it's incumbent upon those 30 to actually make the claim, and then they get added to the pools. But it doesn't get divided, the 330 doesn't get divided amongst the 30 plus. So there were some victims who felt, no one condoned the behavior or the activity. But there were some victims who felt bad for me, <laughs> which is strange and absurd, all things considered, considering they're walking away from sixteen, thirty-two, or forty-eight thousand dollars. Now, investors like that will have invested in other things that they would have lost their money, and no illegal actions took place, right? I mean, would anytime someone puts their money up for investment, like there is a possibility, in some cases, strong possibility that they're never going to see that money again. In this case, though, there was there was actual wrongdoing in play. And, uh, and they, I guess, had to come to grips with that. But some people were more gracious about it than others, you're saying. That is correct. That is a very good statement and very clear about the state of affairs. And 
I wouldn't liken it to you win some, you lose some, because right. that would be the other, the alternative is that you got involved in something, the issuer, the operator, maybe didn't misappropriate the funds, but they just couldn't quite get going. Yeah. But there was intent here. Right. There was intent to use that money. And although it wasn't to go build a big, you know, nice little mansion down in Central America, although that would have been nice. <laughs> I got asked a lot in prison, you know, like, where's the money? <laughs> that was next on the list, right? Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. That's right. No, the intention was to uh, help keep a company alive without permission to doing so by the investors and letting them carry the bag. So if you, I've asked you this before, if you hadn't have gotten to the point where you were out of, like, couldn't keep it going and you had that lunch with your friend, would you have turned yourself in? If you would, if you got the money from them, do you think you would have gone, kept going? Or what was the rationale in your head to like, this is where it ends? Is it, it, is it because it ended or because you finally just had to turn yourself in? Yeah, really good question. It, you know, would have, could have, should have. And, um, in that particular case, I was motivated by a, um, a course that I had taken just the month before or two months before. But it was a seminar series as part of this course where I truly believe that if you start taking responsibility for your actions in your life, once you get there, you can realize that, oh, what took me so long? I should have done this a long time ago, as opposed to suffering from the severe depression and anxiety that I was going through. You know, <clears throat> never attempted suicide, but I came very close on a couple of occasions. Um, so the the quick answer is, I don't know. The long answer is, I would have it's likely I would have kept going for at least that month. Because when I put it out there, after I turned myself in, I had reached out to three or four of our investors and over half of the ones that I reached out to said, yeah, I'd love to have some notes or yeah, units of land or whatever the case might be. I could have bought myself more time. I felt I was losing steam in being able to bring in the debt facility into the company. There's a lot, there was a lot of complication around that. And I just, I likened it to like a corporate suicide. Like I just didn't have it in me anymore. I was like, I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. And I was sick. Like I was not well. I don't mean like crazy, but the anxiety, the levels of anxiety. <clears throat> After turning myself in, which sounds really, that might sound a little absurd. It was the first night I slept in a long time. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like a load's been lifted, even though what's coming is, you don't know what's coming, but that, I think we've all been there at some point where not to that extreme, but like you've had a conversation or done something and you can sleep or something's happened. Like that, that makes sense to me mm. that, that that was the first night you had a good sleep. Cause that's a huge load to be lifted off. Right Yeah. now it's now it's like day one again. For sure. In some ways, right? Except for, you know, when you can kind of wake up and take off the numbness and you go, oh, there's, uh, there's, yeah, some there's some music to face here. There's some music to face here. Yeah. Judgment's so, coming. Yeah, yeah you, for uh, sure. I so, want to ask one thing though. So you said that you were kind of losing steam, you know, it was just, but you first told it while you were talking to this one guy, right? This one friend of yours. So what was it about that individual? Right. That like, what was it about that one very moment, that one guy that flipped the switch or whatever it was? Cause it, if it, if you were just tired, you would have told the story that you were just tired. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think a lot of things, um, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, Parker had overheard in, in my own podcast, in my own recordings is people in the football community and especially those that are revered and he is, um, um, you know, what a commitment over all those years and the money he paid for just to keep that program alive and the battles and yada, yada, yada. But I looked at coaches and leaders of these communities as being like father figures. And <clears throat> I thought, boy, if there's somebody in that moment that I could disappoint more, <laughs> like find that person for me. There was no way. And the fact that he was frail, like he was so vulnerable visually. And in my heart, I wanted to do so much more for him. Well, there was just a glimmer that made me say, you know what, this is not going to help that. If you want to do something for him, this is not it. Mm. So there was that. And the fact that I had already toyed with the idea, like, you know, canceled or postponed that luncheon a few times and, you know, over a period of a week, oh, can we do it Thursday instead of Tuesday? That kind of thing. That would be probably the biggest reason why it was him as opposed to, let's say, somebody else. So I had a very deep personal connection with him. Not that I didn't with um, some of our investors, but I didn't, you know, if investors in our company were not friends before, many of them became friends through that whole process of being part of what we were up to in a good way. And <clears throat> that hurt as well. It's just, I just didn't, for whatever reason, there was just this little flicker that said, you got a little fight in you today, do the right thing. Take it for a test drive and don't go for the low lying fruit, go for something big. Because <laughs> <clears throat> leading up to that, I was, you know, there were conversations of restitution and, uh, you know, making amends with people well up to that, you know, sort of that January to March. And maybe it's because I did some of that. I had, okay. That's not so bad and the result's okay. Go on to the next one. That's a little meteor and then a little meteor. And I said, let's go for the whole enchilada. This is the big one. This is the doozy right now. So maybe there's some of that as well. I had already sort of groomed myself a little bit, a little bit of spring training. And, <clears throat> you know, to Parker's point of, you know, the, you know, I had the best sleep. Let me rephrase that. I slept better than I have been being an insomniac since I was 10. And, uh, it took some work to figure out when all that started. I needed to stop saying I've been an insomniac for the last five, six years. <laughs> I've been since I was 10. I just was not a good, I did not sleep well. I carried the weight of the world on my shoulder, even shoulders, even at that, at that age. What's interesting in all of it is when I really, really slept well is when I had my second interview with the RCMP. And then it was like, okay, first of all, they treated me with a lot of respect and dignity. It was not, you know, I was sort of had this expectation it was going to be like a cop show, you know, two of them walking in and out of an interrogation or into an interview room and they're strategizing and then they come in and, you know, drop a mic or a light on your eyes and go, <laughs> where were you on the night of? Yeah. Their promotion is <laughs> hanging on this confession. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of protocols because in prosecution, they want to make sure that they're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. Cause if mm. there's one thing I learned and especially from prison, career criminals know how to play the game and they know the system. So they are very quick to be able to share with their counselors, their defense counselors, whether it's for 
uh, parole or uh, bail hearings and things like that, they know the right buttons to push, and especially if they've been reoffenders. Mm. So the protocols were great, and all the way up into the court, there was not one authority that I f- had ill feelings towards. And in fact, <clears throat> the gentleman's name uh, with the RCM, the, with JSOT, his name is Lionel Bush. He was the lead investigator in this case. Um, I maintained a very healthy relationship with him through the whole process. And on day of sentencing, I had I had a different day of sentencing other than July 22nd. It was uh, two weeks before that. I can't remember the exact date, but something like July 10th rings a bell. And I asked for an arraignment because I hadn't got my affairs in order. And uh, in other words, getting ready to go away. <laughs> and um, he attended that one, not to make sure that, well, make sure he gets locked up <laughs> and all this good stuff. But at the end, we had a little quick conversation and he gives me a hug in the courtroom. Not just outside the courtroom, sorry. Let me, I want to be honest about that. And there's just something in our conversations where he would say things like, you know, unlike most of the dirt bags that I, you know, am investigating, this one's different mm-hmm. for many reasons. It doesn't make it right. You definitely were offside and you definitely need to pay the piper. However, I also see a human being in here that under certain circumstances made the wrong choices and decisions. And honestly, and it's, it, it is fascinating, especially with, you know, human relations, how far contrition actually goes, you know, when, when people are actually like feeling sorry about their actions, right? That, that, that actually goes a long way. People can make a lot of mistakes and, and when they own up to it, how, how quick, generally speaking, not always, you know, people are to, to get in their corner, you mm-hmm. know, in, in those situations. But, uh, I'm just, I'm listening. Obviously, there's not going to be a lot of our listeners who've been through the story, so they'll find that fascinating. But I think there's enough within your story, John, that will resonate with people in different ways, right? Who has not made some mistakes or gone down a path a little longer than they should have while making mistakes, try to figure out ways, you know, out of that, um, put that off, felt relief when they did, um, wronged people, sought forgiveness. I mean, all these things obviously resonate with the human experience, right? Yours is just a very unique um, combination of those elements that, mm-hmm. you know, lands you in, in prison, right? mm-hmm. um, So, yeah, I mean, before we start talking about, you know, what, what prison was like and coming out, you know, tell us, tell us about, like, the relationships in your life, you know, during this. You know, how, what happened with relationships when this was all unwinding? Yeah, it, it was a mixed bag. You know, how people would either react, perceive, articulate how they felt about it. And um, like when, prior to actually turning myself in, when I felt like, you know, I was making amends with people, you know, throughout my life. Um, I continued to do that process after I turned myself in. And some people, as an example, one of my clients, uh, I went to the day after I had turned myself in or the same day. No, it wouldn't have been the same day because that went really late. And um, I told him what had happened because one of the commitments I made to myself through that whole process of the interview was whoever is involved in my life, whether professionally or personally, they need to know that this has gone on. I don't want them to find out on their own, not, you know, not from a strategic standpoint, but more of, I don't want them to walk into a surprise. And especially if they're invested. So I went to my main client and I said, um, hey, this is what's happened. This is what I've done. And this is what I'm doing about it. And I am under a formal investigation right now. And to which I will cooperate with uh, 110%. And knowing the risk being that, well, that's a good reason for termination of contract. 
Um, not only did he, was he appreciative of the fact that I came to him with the brutal honesty, one of many people who said, well, kind of a stupid thing to do. And I go, yeah, you're telling me. He let me keep my tasks and he gave me some new work under contract. Some might chalk that up into, well, you know, that's great. You know, you could be this guy who does all this evil and funny stuff, but your work performance (laughs) speaks to productivity and dollars and cents. I've never looked at it as figure two. I truly believe that from experience and having these conversations that there are people out there who believe that I can be so much more and that I was just not in a good way and that there was a lot going on and I made really stupid decisions around it. So he was one and there were others. And then I started talking to victims, victims that I was closer with and doing the same thing. And I was so surprised of the level of, uh, of compassion and grace for not just myself, for who I am and what I've done and feeling sorry for me, but also feeling for the victims as well. Not just them as victims, but other victims in the case as well. And from somebody who for his entire life feels like he doesn't deserve good things and he doesn't deserve happiness and things like that, that was really hard at first to accept that. Other than being really, really surprised, I thought it would go completely the other way. Now, not every conversation turned out that way. And in fact, my co-host in my podcast is a very dear friend of mine. And I said, okay, I've gone through this two-week blitz of, you know, making, you know, making amends with victims and, you know, family members that I had affected and loved ones, et cetera, and, you know, people involved in work. I thought, okay, the end of two weeks, I got to reach out to Kate. If anybody's going to give me an emotional hug, I'm going to get one from Kate. I need one to wrap it up for the two weeks. And um, it's very interesting. And this is why I chose her, asked her to be my co-host, and she chose willingly to do so, is um, it was over here, not that far away from here at the Crossroads Market. It was a hot day in the spring, early spring. We're sitting out on the the picnic, uh, one of the picnic tables out there, having a coffee. And she's nodding her head as I'm telling my story. And I'm telling it a little bit light at this point, as opposed to like all the pain and the angst that came along with it, because I was expecting this hug. So I finished talking. She was quiet for a bit. And then she looks me right in the eyes and she goes, you're a fucking asshole. And I was caught off guard. I just didn't expect that. I was like, oh, uh, now what? Reel it in, reel it in, abort, abort. And um, what I realized from that and having even deeper conversations with her over time was very rarely did I create a space for people to share honestly and openly with me. I would bully and bulldoze her into conversations, whether work narratives, things of that nature. And it's the first time she felt comfortable enough in sharing with me. And yes, it was an extreme situation where she maybe said, oh, it's enough. You're going to hear from me. But she spoke freely. And at the end, there was that emotional hug, just to let you know. But I wasn't sure if I was willing to receive it because I was like, ooh, hug now? But it really changed how I felt about individuals in my sphere, whether somebody I just met for a minute or felt, um, or have known them forever. I have this context of life when it comes to my relationships that people are either extremely credible or they're not. And there's no in between. And when they're very credible, they walk on water. You know, I will jump on a sword for you. So you can't do anything or say anything wrong. And then there are people here that could say two words and all of a sudden I've already pegged them as being someone who's not credible in my life and in my world. And how limiting that had been. 
And I'm not suggesting she wasn't credible. If anything, I found her very credible in many regards. But I did realize that that's how I treated people. So I put off this, these airs on both sides that I was loving, willing, and accepting of who they are. But inside, I'm boiling inside for that person who's not credible. And it came from a very strange place. And again, this is from some deep work that I felt that if I vocalized how I truly felt about people sometimes in my judgment, which was abundant, that I would look like an ass. So that trumped everything. So I did not want to look like an ass at any expense. So I'd play off that, you know what? Gabe, I think you're awesome. This is wonderful. Love what you're up to. What are you really saying? Here? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as opposed to not necessarily being honest and to, you know, to as far as, you know, coming out and just blurting out how I truly feel about things, because that's also dangerous. And especially when you don't have, you don't understand the entire context. But I would have this tendency, you could say two sentences and I already know where you're going with the conversation, what you're doing, what you're thinking, how you're feeling about it, etc. And what I found is what's freeing is just being open to the possibility that you could be something completely different than what I originally thought. And I'm greatly, um, I'm so grateful when I have that turnabout. And what's even better is sharing it with that person. You know what? Remember the other day when we had a conversation and you said this? this I thought a, you were such an idiot and then you proved me wrong. <laughs> yeah, something that, like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. And um, that itself is freeing because all those other feelings of angst, anger, fear, all those not good emotions, they sure own you. And I tell you, you get old quick. And it's very limiting to live, you know, as opposed to imparting love and being accepting and not just saying it, but actually being that way. John, you said that in that version of the story, you were telling it to, uh, to Kate, you were saying that it was the light version of the story as opposed to one that was full of pain and angst. What's today's version of the story? Well, today's version is everything that she knows already. Are you talking about my conversation with her? No, I'm talking or, about this conversation right now. Oh, the one that we're having here? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, so not involving Kate, cause that is, that is a true depiction and we have a conversation of it in one of our episodes and it's very interesting because I felt I'd mentioned it to her before and it either didn't land or maybe there was still a little bit of, oh, you know what, softly tell her the story, get the reaction and see how she's going to be about it. But <clears throat> when it came down to conversations that I had with people, the painful one would be um, over talking people to a point where even if they had some suspicions that something was a little bit off, I would create spin very quickly, very quickly on the fly survival. And in almost every situation where it felt like, well, as opposed to them saying, yeah, no problem. Here's the check. We're sorry. Who do we make that out to? What project? But it was when there was some questioning involved, I'd really pour on the manipulative sales techniques. And by that meaning, I'd tell them something and then more lies would just sort of pile on top of that to create some validity of what we were up to. And those are the things that were very painful emotionally. Like they really, really hit me hard. And <clears throat> I remember the December leading up to my turn and it was in the, uh, the end of December when it was my daughter's last day of school prior to Christmas break. 
and dropping her off at the schoolyard and watching her walk across the yard. And I'd said a goodbye that was a lot more heartfelt than the daily. See you later. Have a good day. Love you. Because little did she know that was the last time. That time I didn't think it was the last time. I thought it was going to be the time where I was going to go take my life. And so lying brought guilt into me like fire in any form or fashion. But to keep up appearances, I didn't want to be figured out. I would play it off like I was okay with what I was saying and I meant it and it, it's gospel. Any interaction almost became that way to the point where I was lying because it just was so habitual. I remember my office manager coming to me and asking me about a certain situation and asked me why I would lie to her about that. And I go, I don't know. <laughs> It just was so habitual that, and then I looked at it and I go, yeah, that was stupid. That makes no sense to tell the truth. There's no repercussions from it, but just, it was so ingrained and, uh, and I play it off and I truly believe this still that I didn't want her to get involved in any of this stuff because I knew if we were going to be the last two people in the company, you know, she would have been, um, you know, maybe implicated as well. So I made it very clear in my interviews of all the stuff that I did and why she was not a privy to that. And it wasn't a matter of protecting her from something she had done wrong. She just didn't know. I was that gifted, I felt. Who knows, right? She probably knew all along, but, but nonetheless, um, that was it. And then when I went to others, let's say, that were directly affected, um, one of them was, um, a victim and his sister. And not only that, he was one of our sales consultants as well. And he was sort of a hybrid. He was a guy who has been affected directly. Unlike Kate, Kate wasn't directly affected, but everyone in my world was indirectly affected. But I thought this is a guy who cares enough about me and things like that. He possibly, he should be the emotional hug <laughs> as well. And that just didn't happen. And in fact, reading his victim impact statement uh, when I was in court, um, it was really hurtful. Um, the claim was to the judge, and they had to redact part of it, was yes, he needs to pay back every investor their money, but he should also go to jail. I don't know why they took it out because that was truly his feelings, and I couldn't agree with him more at that point. It's like, yeah, that guy needs to go to jail. Oh, that's me. The, the whole process was very interesting. And it was unique for all those involved and including anyone involved on the prosecution side, including the judge, the prosecuting lawyers with the Alberta Securities Commission, the investigative team. Why? Because um, it looked a little bit different than what they were used to looking at. And it was a quick agreement to the, the, um, the statement of facts of the, of the case. Some, and it wasn't to get, make it heavy on the mitigating side so I get lesser of a sentence. Because they made it very clear what they were pursuing and they got exactly what they wanted. And I was okay with that. I'm curious about that. So uh, Parker brought this up to me before we were just chatting about the situation. So you were sentenced to two years and one day, right? And so yeah. anyone listening to this unfamiliar, anything over two years in Canada is federal prison, right? Correct. So, but but uh, Parker uh, mentioned that you had, you had opted for that. Is that right? Or uh, yeah, Correct. Tell, tell me about that. Sure. So the two years plus a day is the difference between going to a provincial institution and a federal institution. 
The idea of going to a federal institution is that you qualify for parole one-third of your sentence as long as it's not a violent offense, which mine was not. So for a two-year sentence, that would mean seven months, you know, or slightly less than seven months. Eligibility. That's correct. If I was sentenced to two years, not less a day, but let's say 15 months, I would have still been in institution for another eight months after I was released because the provincial system does not have a parole system. Mm. My understanding is they're working on one, but they don't have one. But what you are released in the provincial system, like the federal one, is what's called your STAT. So for the same reasons, if you do not have a uh, violent offense or the potential of a violent offense, you get automatically released uh, two-thirds of your sentence, whether you qualified for parole or not, and you write out the balance of your sentence in the outside. So that was strategic on my point, uh, on my part, yeah. And the judge didn't, he made it very clear at various junctures during pre-sentencing and sentencing that it doesn't matter what prosecution was asking for or what I was asking for, and even if we agreed, he ultimately gets to make the decision. He made that very clear. They're very good at, uh, you know, were you under duress when you made these decisions and things like that. So when I hear about these criminal cases, let's say down in the States, there's none of that going on. It's more of it's made very clear the evidence will speak or whoever's louder in court, right? So that's pretty good, right? Because you get that last chance to say, yeah, as a matter of fact, I felt the pressure from my partners, and which did not happen, by the way. Even though all this had started by one of my other partners, I also knew what was going on. There was no, it happened and I looked around and I go, okay, where did that $250,000 go? I knew every, even though I was not well emotionally, I knew everything that was going on and I agreed to it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Work in Progress podcast, hosted by Gabe Kane and Alex Pudisi. This is part one of a two-part interview with guests Sean Parker and John Laboon. Listen to this podcast and more at worknicer.com. No one succeeds alone.